Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Jesse Schoengut, geologist at Canadian Natural Resources Limited. This is exciting. You're getting a sneak peek at some recent research that is currently awaiting publication. We'll be talking about Jesse Schoengut, Marie Gingra's scientific article titled Assessing the Lateral and Vertical Variability of a Channel Film a case study from the Pallax River, Willapa Bay, Washington. Some highlights include discussing the difference between channel fill and point bars, an associated terminology, eta cross stratification and epsilon cross stratification. We're rocking out today with Jesse. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. Glad to be here. This is going to be fun. So you did some interesting field work on your study. Can you tell us a bit about Willapa Bay and Pollock River? Sure. So um, and Willapa Bay is a, a large estuary right on the Oregon-Washington border. Um, it's, it's, I guess it's studied pretty um, consistently since the 1980s by first the USGS, then Murray Jingra at the U of A, and then I guess me, haha. Um, mostly because there's no um, inhabitants inhabitants along the bay, and um, the processes in the bay are now reflected in um, Pleistocene outcrops that rim the entire bay. So you can go and stand on a point bar, and then run and go and look at the outcrop and see a point bar in the outcrop, and you can check out the inlet and see the processes that are going on there, and then run to the outcrop that shows you what the inlet looks like. So it's a great uh, process uh, sedimentology um, location to, to study at. Um, the Palix River itself, I guess, isn't really a river. It's a, it's a tidal channel. So the, the way Willapa Bay works is you have two main um, rivers that, that drain the Willapa Highlands into the bay. And then you have these arms, these five tidal channels that are basically entrenched uh, creeks that really have our 80, 90% um, tidal water coming in from the bay that inundate into the land and then they rise and fall as the tide goes and everything like that. So they're, they're really a part of the estuary rather than um, a body of water that's bringing sediment into the bay. So these, these little tidal channels, I guess, have very different um, processes going on in them than the rivers do. Um, so they're, they're kind of a neat, uh, juxtaposition to the classical, I guess, point bar models and everything that you look at. So if I was looking at a map, you say Pallix river is small. How yep. many sections or townships would it take up? Well, that's a good question. It would be, let me think. It would probably be 20 kilometers long, but as the river, as the river runs, so what that would be, say, three, say, two and a half to maybe three townships long. And it, it does go up. So just like every other river, it runs in and then it, it starts forking out into the into the highlands and everything like that. And then it eventually does have a little bit of fluvial input into it in the very, very nether regions of it, where it does catch some of the the rainwater and drainage and everything in the back end so you're really looking at like the with the palex like a dalrympian um 
facies model where you'd have a little fluvial river with a bayhead delta with a big muddy channel off the end of it that would then run into the into the river so you just it's just all um compressed landward rather than being compressed or in this case bayward like a fluvial rip channel would be great so in this study you collected vibracore from eight locations and then you x-rayed them for the bioturbation index or bi yeah. and your bi calculation method was very innovative could you tell us a little bit about it and uh, explain kind of how you use this to predict which way was landward and bayward? Sure. So I, I wouldn't say it's innovative. I, I stole Murray's way of doing it because um, it worked really well. And uh, I guess that was kind of the goal of my whole work out there was to, um, to do some of the stuff that Murray never got a chance to do and, and do it in way more detail. So we use these, these vibracores, um, we took Cancors and, um, and um, Senkenberg, big box cores and everything like that too, to get kind of a representative view of what the bioturbation looked like um, through the river. And in conjunction with the, uh, the sieving and the grain size changes that we saw as we were, we were collecting all of these. So what we were able to, to find with it, I guess, is we, we first made the, the assumption, I guess, that we had enough data to be representative of all of the different areas with our cancors and vibracores. So we knew we weren't getting one-off things or anything like that. But um, in a, I guess, in a nutshell, um, the, in the Palex, because you have, um, you have tidal water going in as far, I guess, you, you can locate where your turbidity maxima is. And so your salinity stays pretty consistent till you get closer to this turbidity maxima. Then as the fresh water starts to influence with it, you drop your salinity until you're fully fresh. Um, where that happened in Willapa was or in the Palex story was a really coincident spot, but um, on a big bar that you could measure it around. But um, as you lose your salinity, I guess you get, you get bigger traces in fully estuarine um, saltwater deposits right you get the nice big um branching traces and silenicness little j traces and everything like that um where and that's in really sandy sediments as you get muddier you're able to um to start to get more complex traces so you start to introduce smaller um um yeah smaller traces and and that, that spiral or maybe you'll get um bigger branches on them or something like that until you're into fully fresh water where you or not fully, I guess, more fresh water where you get um, really, really complex traces. So you're able to, uh, de depending on the salinity, I guess, um, control in, in the Palex, you're able to see these different zones really nicely where you got big traces, then lots of traces of both big and small, and then kind of really small, um, complex traces and the big control there was first of all it was the salinity as you could map where that turbidity maxima was and where it was moving to as you seasonally by the different number of traces that you saw and the second one was that the the traces are really controlled by the the substrate the the sediment so in in really sandy trace in sandy areas you um you tend to have different traces than you do in really muddy areas. So as you mix the two together, yeah, you kind of coincidentally got the same type of style that you'd see with the, 
the change in salinity. So that was really the cool thing I think that that we real or we found or or uh, interpreted from it was just that these two things kind of go hand in hand, and and you can pick these um, these zones out and the the boundaries, if you would, between where the zones are, are really they become really predictable. And actually, if you go to the outcrops, you can see that the the same thing happened in the old Willapa Bay, the Pleistocene Willapa Bay, is you end up with big bands of these I, these IHS beds and these these different bioturbated beds um, through the the outcrop, just with different um, grain size or different grain sizes, different sand to mud ratios as you as you go through it. So it's a good mapping tool. Um, I guess that's the second part of your question. So it's a, it's a great mapping tool um, because you do know um, if you're able to predict or you're lucky enough to be in a modern place where you can go and find it yourself, um, you can use it as a tool to map which direction your, your, is landward and bayward. So you're in the Willapa example, you know that your, your sand source is the ocean or it's coming in from the Columbia River looping around. So... If you're in, if you have a higher sand content, you know you're closer to the bayward side. And if you have a higher mud content, you know you're closer to the, the land side because that's where all of the, the mud comes from. It comes from the, the weathering of the volcanic Willapa highlands and the sloughing of all the old blocks and, and everything. So if you have a, an inclination or an idea of what your sediment inputs are, you could map them and you could go in either either direction to to figure it out based on the the sand mud ratios you have so the bioturbation index helps you predict the turbidity current boundary and then if you go bayward from the turbidity current you'd have more sand um, yes. and potentially better reservoir and if you go landward you'd have more mud and potentially poor poorer reservoir yes or i guess you could if you if you wanted to think of it as a glass half full, um, the if you went far enough landward, you'd find the big gravel bayhead delta, right? So you'd you could use the the presence of mud isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe if you were trying to drill a well into it right away, but um, you could use it as a tool to say I'm getting, I know I'm getting more landward, but I should find. Sorry about that. Um, I should find more. Um, more of this facies or or as i as i get more inland so it's a good it's a good tool and there's um uh, i wasn't the the one that came up with that um, um curtis letley at the u of a did a lot of work with that on the mcmurray the steep bank outcrops where they they found the same thing um and i mean gosh you know that's what sarah um and tyler and all them were doing too right is mapping out those those different um um faces that you get landward versus bayward so it's uh and others those are just the the people i can think of off my head but lots of people have done that kind of stuff so mud's not always a bad thing great as well as doing the viper core you also did some seismic surveys and shot them over five crossings and then you used the seismic to identify lateral and vertical stacking patterns and saw an ihs hs ihs pattern can you tell us a bit about the significance of this pattern? Sure. So we actually did uh, 70 kilometers worth of seismic, and I just picked the five best lines that, that showed it. But um, 
Um, yeah, the, the seismic was great because uh, in Willapa you have um, the Pleistocene firm ground. So it's a nice um, reflector bottom that I guess you can see everything else in, in the bottom when it reflects off of it. And it's not that deep. So you get an idea of what you're looking at. And it does actually, funny enough, look a lot like the seismic lines that I've seen through, through channels and everything like that. So the, the, I guess the importance of the pattern and something I didn't really appreciate at the time was that, um, the, it's not like a point bar, these, these channel fills. And that's why we started calling them channel fills rather than, than point bars is they're not deposited along one side of the river, the channel, they're actually running all the way from, from bank to bank. So you have a, a steep side of a channel fill. You have uh, the horizontal part that's still attached to that. And then you have the other side that's a little bit shallower and flatter. And that's in, in the, the Willapa case, it's because these tidal channels don't migrate like a, a fluvial river does. They don't have, they look like they have meander belts, but the meander belts don't you don't end up with oxbows and them cutting or anything like that. They're basically confined within this salt marsh. So they, they get de- the deposits happen every tidal cycle when the water goes up and down. And then um, once the, it clogs it up enough, you end up blowing all of the sediment out into the bay in a storm or through some kind of massive flooding event. And then you end up moving the river without actually moving it. It just takes a different path and, and keeps going. So the, the seismic really enlightened me at least to that kind of a stacking pattern that from once you got into the middle estuary, from the middle estuary all the way to the inner estuary, you had these, these channel fills that were deposited all the way across. And that's where we started going with the, this IHS, HS, IHS pattern across it is um, when you think point bar, uh, you think uh, a nice ver- vertically accreted deposit that that you know has the associated inferences with it from the McMurray, right? Big river, big stacking patterns. They're they're laterally continuous bodies, whereas um, that's not always the case. And and the this pattern of this this horizontal this heterolithic stratified that's not inclined in any way is still a part of it. And it's an important part of it because that's sometimes the only part that's left in the end is these, these flat portions of the bottom of the channel. As you don't have a scour or a um, uh, breccia or anything at the bottom of the channel. You have this flat alternating sand and mud bed. So that, that was, like I said, to me, the biggest thing that the seismic showed. And, and then, you know, you can go look at the outcrop and you get a, much better appreciation for what you're looking at in the outcrop when you realize that that's what's going on. Um, and then, yes, you, you, you probably a, a smarter person than me probably would have figured it out. And I think Murray already knew it, but he is way smarter than me. So that, uh, that's probably why he knew it already. But, um, I think the seismic, what the, the beauty of this, of it was that it, it showed what internally some of these packages look like. And I'm most proud of one of the, the figures I have in that, that my thesis, or I guess hopefully the paper when Murray edits it, I hope he listens to this, um, <laughs> um, is that it, it kind of shows the internal complexity of some of these, these channel fills that you end up with 
a lot of um, slump blocks and you end up with um, um, these cuts and fills and, and different styles of the way that these bars build on top of one another that you can't really see in the outcrop. And that unless you, uh, you put a wetsuit on and go and take hundreds of can cores or, or <coughs> excuse me, vibra cores, which I did, by the way, um, you would never be able to, uh, to, to see them. Um, so the seismic was cool to show the, the breadth and the, the length and the width of everything to, to give you an appreciation of how big the different bodies can be in different reaches of the, the Palix River. So when you talk about your favorite diagram there, are you talking about figure four, eight, the depositional style of Edda cross stratification? No, there's habit? one that, um, there's, it's just after that. There's, uh, I don't have it in front of me. It's like, uh, it's like a really hokey, um, it's got like a Google Earth image. Yeah, those ones. Those oh. are the ones. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like, a, I felt like a, a real geologist when I showed them to Murray and George and they never told me I did anything wrong on them. So I, uh, those, I, I think those were really cool because conceptually, I mean, even like think about some of the reservoirs we look at now, right? I never thought that way when I was working in grad school, but um, if you try to conceptualize what the internal architecture of a point bar is, you always kind of build it out as this big body that you just can punch wells in the middle of it. And I thought it was really neat to try to draw out what, what these, um, these actually look like and how, how complex they can be. And looking through the seismic, man, you can, you can see how neat they trying to correlate them and how neat they they do correlate like we think they do when we go to draw them out, but there's also these cool inner compartments and, and everything that you can, uh, you can see. So I, do you think yeah. you would have noticed these without running the seismic? Yes. I think, like I said, I think it was, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was always known that that's what it was. I think the seismic just kind of gave you that extra 3d look that you, you couldn't have gotten otherwise. And it's, it's value. I mean, heck, it's the same thing. Like I said, we use it for in at work, right? As you, um, it gives you that that higher detail than you can get with a bunch of holes in the ground, and you can tie your holes in the ground then to something that's in the middle of the river, or or um, or gives you the aha that yeah, everything does run right across the way. So I think yes, yes, you could have, but it sure made a huge difference to have it and and see the variability from a real point bar. Well, I guess it wouldn't be a point bar, a real mouth bar, mid-channel bar in the, in the outer estuary to these channel fills in the middle and inner estuary. So you spoke there about the internal architecture. Um, and in the study, you also identified two different bases. Uh, so bases one was your highly bioturbated lenticular sands and muds that you mm -hmm. interpreted to be intertidal flats. And phases two was rarely bioturbated inclined heterolithic beds that you yeah. interpreted to be channel fills. So what are your thoughts on the finer details of these phases? That's a good question. Um, I think that the, the, just how different, I guess, they are. And once you kind of realize that they are, they look. So where I came from this, I guess, was I started by mapping all of the outcrop. And in the outcrop, it all looks the same, right? You just have sand and mud running all the way up with some traces running through them here and there. And you think you're really smart because you go from the bottom to the top and you go, yeah, I have all an intertidal flat. It 
no bioturbation, little bit lots, and then it does it again. And I think that the the difference seems like a lot when you're writing it out is it's easy to say, yeah, there's no bioturbation down there. And then you get a little bit more. But I think what it shows is it shows a nice transition from being underwater all the time to being underwater some of the time to being underwater only half the time then and then never underwater. I guess that one was the, that was my, I think, fourth facies was like the super tidal flats or the, the Spartinia flats that are there. But um, it really gives you kind of an appreciation for where critters like to live and, and how that, how the ecology ties into the, the process sedimentology, right? When you're underwater all the time, you, if you have traces, you have very specific kinds of traces of, of lobsters and crayfish and things that like to be underwater all the time. And as you move into the intertidal flat, you get more animals that want to, to colonize there and, and live there. And as you even get higher up where you're leaving, you know, organic material on the surface and everything for them to, to eat off the surface, you get even different traces and everything like that. So I think it was just the, the, the difference in the depositional processes that controlled how each of them were de, were deposited was really neat. Definitely. So in the paper, you also highlighted the difference between channel fill and point bars. And you mentioned that the channel fill deepens and stacks, whereas point bars widen and meander. Um, so did you see as they were stacking or widening um, differences between the facies or the seismic or any other thoughts that you could share on that? Yeah, well, I think like, like I said earlier, I think the biggest difference is how point bars um, build with, or I guess in opposite to or indifference to how channel fills build. Like, you know, point bars build with lateral accretion, right? You're, you're depositing them around a meander bend and you get these nice sets of, of IHS going around them, whereas these channel fills, they are laterally accreted, but there's also a significant vertical accretion component to them too that you have a lot more... Um, internal variability in them as a, uh, as a result of that. Um, I think the other thing that I was trying to steer away from, and I was trying to be smart, I think at the time, but maybe it's not as smart as I thought it was, but um, is when you say point bar to a geologist, if I asked you what a point bar was, you'd have an idea in your head right away of a big, beautiful point bar in the Mississippi river, right? Mm -hmm. But so if I said point bar to you that I was looking at point bars in Willapa Bay, you would get that picture in your head right off the bat and they don't look anything like that. So we were trying to steer away from the use of a geology catch-all phrase. Like I find that with shore face now, right? Everybody says they found a shore face, but they don't, act, they don't know how to describe or interpret that shore face. And that was kind of the, you know, Point bar equals IHS equals this kind of a depositional environment. You were already kind of drawn to that conclusion. So we were trying to use channel fill as a way to differentiate between the way that the bars in these rivers were deposited. On both, you had two bars on either side that were genetically related to each other. They were the same being deposited at the same time versus one bar that 
had its own morphology because in, in the Palex, you could have a straight portion of the channel that had exactly the same looking bar as one that had a slight bend in it versus one that um, almost looped around on itself, right? Because you're just depositing it all the way across. So there's no, God, I don't even remember all of them now, but you know, there was straight, straight attached, welded, like there's different terms for the point bar, depending on the apex of the, the bend that you're in. Right. And you can calculate the, the size of it and the, by the flow that's going around it and the size of the river. So with channel fills, you can get big bars. Well, I'm even using the wrong word, big, big geo bodies in a really small channel because the if you have a 20 meter channel you're going to have a 20 meter bar whereas in a fluvial river to get a 20 meter point bar you need like uh god i don't remember how the math goes but you need a huge river or multiple episodes of cutting and and filling and everything right to get a bar that's that big so i i think it was a way it's the the main difference is just yeah the the deposition and the uh the process by which I guess the, you would come up with the, the size and length of the geo body. I think it's great differentiating the terminology so everyone can keep it straight. Um, it almost sounds like too, if you saw just the edge of the channel fill and saw the IHS, you could interpret it as a point bar if you didn't look across the whole channel and then you'd underestimate how um, thick the, package potentially could be um whereas if you were looking through the middle as well and saw the flat surfaces you might have a better idea of what you were looking at exactly well exactly yeah and it's like i said it's one of those there's we have funny catch-all terms in geology like like point bar shore face even ihs right is a nice it's a catch-all term that you don't have to do a ton of um People, believe, people have their own interpretations for what IHS is. Or you can tell a geologist that this is IHS and they'll go, yeah, it's a point bar, it's inclined. But IHS can be hugely variable. Um, and understanding the style, whether it's a channel fill or point bar notwithstanding, the style and the, the, of the deposition and what the, the, the controls on the deposition of that IHS are, are huge. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, so that's... That's why, that's why I guess I went into detail about trying to, to describe the different one. And I showed, I drew that diagram of how a channel fill gets created. That's not at all a geology way of saying things because things don't get created, but the way it's deposited, there we go. Um, is, um, you know, you have this cutting and filling and blowing out, which is really different than a consistent, um, deposition around a bend or that a that a classical point bar would be so it's kind of a silly diagram but it's it's uh it kind of shows in the end that while the picture in the end might look the, look similar to what the a point bar would look like the way you got there was a lot different and it probably has a lot of implications for what you're looking to drill where you're looking to find better stuff for and everything like that so you mentioned there um, different terminologies, and in the paper you talked a bit about eta cross stratification yeah. as well as epsilon cross stratification, um, and they were first defined by Allen in 1963. I'm sure we probably learned about these in school, but uh, it was a bit of a refresher for me when I was reading yeah. the paper. 
So uh, maybe we can talk about when we use these terms and why edit cross stratification is so unique. Yeah, I think we did learn about this in like in one of Fred Clark's classes, probably a long too many years to say out loud now, Maureen. But um, um, yeah, so this is actually one of the coolest papers I've ever read. So the Alan went through and he basically used the Greek alphabet and listed every single type of um, depositional style that you could get. So he had like Mu cross stratification and Zoo. It was crazy all the names that he had. But the original name for inclined heterolithic stratification is epsilon cross stratification. So that's the nice classical point bar model that everybody draws out when they draw a point bar. And right after epsilon, he had eta cross stratification listed in there. And that is a, a channel hugging U-shaped all the way across with a horizontal component to it that he said was often found in, in tidal creeks and in uh, drainage channels and things like that. So it was often found in association with epsilon cross stratification, but was had a different depositional style than, than epsilon cross stratification did. So I kind of latched onto this term because it sounded cool and I could use a, a fun word and George Pemberton liked using really old papers and stuff if you could. So I, I thought I was doing, doing good by doing that. And um, it, it was a nice way to do exactly what we were talking about before is it was a nice way to differentiate between the depositional style of IHS in a river where you have absolutely you only have inclined beds versus versus um, deposition in a tidal Creek where you have the horizontal component of it. And you could then make your own um, interpretation or you were, you were giving it a more of a, location specific interpretation or style to it so it was you would you could still you'd have to I guess use both terms if you were using it you would say that the you could still say you have epsilon cross stratification on both sides and the entire deposit would be uh eta cross stratified bar or channel fill but um yeah, it was, it's cool that when you go back through those old papers and you found out that guys already had figured this all out and you're just doing it, you're just uh, redoing what they're doing. But um, it, was, it was a great way to, to turn a, uh, a geobody, like a point bar, you could turn it into an observation then. As you could say, I'm observing epsilon cross stratification here, here, and I have this eta cross stratification in the middle and together it forms this eta cross stratified fill or bar that that you could differentiate then from point bars in the in the outer estuary rather than saying i have ihs from the bayhead delta all the way to the middle of the estuary that doesn't really help you when you're you're trying to suss out everything and and differentiate between everything it's you can use a another there's a good term for your toolbox to 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 use so see scanning all those papers back when murray had us do it was a was yeah. a good thing reading finding and reading all the old papers was good finding but the keywords right that's right so so that's yeah so we were i guess trying to trying to use that that um that term for a river river a channel like the like the palex that just has its own 
it has a very different style of, of deposition. So it didn't get the, the associated with something that it's not. Cause you'd, if I told you there was like, I said, point bars in the Palix river and you went there, you, uh, you wouldn't think I was a very good geologist. <laughs> there's not many, there's not many, uh, there's a, there might be a point bar you can see at low tide, but it's a, it's a pretty ugly point bar and it looks like a lot of mud. So you would lose the appreciation for the fact that the other side of the river that you're standing on while you're staring at it is also a point bar of the same deposit. So, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that within the channel fill in the point bars, it's not all preserved. Um, there's some channel um, scouring and it makes it difficult to correlate the bases. And you also mentioned that the pods can become isolated and the muds can be permeability barriers. Yep. Um, so which parts did you see as being preserved and uh, which ones are eroded away? And does it make a difference which ones are eroded? Whew, okay, so the parts that were being preserved were, um, so after you had this blowout event, um, what you'd end up that would remove parts of the point or the, the channel fills, should use my own terms, I guess, um, it was um, you'd end up with basically a hyper picnite, like a, some kind of a bottom hugging fluid mud along the bottom of it, along the running along the bottom of the channel. So because those had some cohesion to them, um, they were left draping whatever was left in the, in the channel from the parts of the bars that didn't get blown out or parts of bars that slumped into the, the channel and, and stayed there because they weren't, they couldn't be moved by the, the tidal current or anything like that. So all throughout um, the Palex, you'd end up with, um, and our, our Vibracore showed it really nicely, was you'd end up with these, say, three to five centimeter thick um, fluid muds. They're structureless, no grading. They're just a, an ugly, ugly mud bed in the middle of your Vibracore. And um, um, I was at the outcrop with um, Bob Dalrymple, and he was actually the one that pointed them out to me in the outcrops there. Is, and they're actually more prevalent once you get your eye trained to what you're looking for. But they're actually all over the outcrops too, um, internally within these, um, these channel fills. And they're, they're mappable through the, on the, on a, the outcrop scale, I guess, um, mappable through the, the beds because they are following these, these events and these, these bars and everything like that. So I, those, those were what was being preserved. Um, and then the second part of your question was how, how can these be predicted? Well, they can't, um, I don't think, um, because they're, they're kind of associated with these, these blowing outs. I think they're, you couldn't predict where they would be or how much of the previous bar would be preserved or, or whether that, um, in, even in some cases, whether that mud is the same mud you're looking at somewhere else. I think it's, you'd need an outcrop scale or a, a hell of a lot of cores to figure out how you would, um, you would correlate them to one another. I think you, if you looked from between two intertidal levels, you could probably get an appreciation or understand the number of, of blowout events or the number of erosive events that you had, because all everything between the two intertidal levels should be related to each other on a, the time scale. So you could probably use it for that to predict if you were going 
into a sandier zone that you might expect the same number of them, or maybe, maybe less because you have less cohesive sediment there. And maybe if you go to the muddy zone, you might expect a little bit more because that might've been more prevalent to slumping or, or something like that. But I think they would be very, very difficult to predict, but because they would be consistent, they are, would be a, a pretty ugly barrier to anything that you, uh, you wanted to do. Great. Well, I think you've explained it all very good. Um, now we have a good idea of the internal architecture of channels and um, kind of the seismic and core tips to look at. Is there anything else that uh, we didn't cover that you'd like to share today? I don't think so. I think if you ever get the chance to go to Willapa on one of Murray's trips, go. Uh, it, they used to... People used to go there all the time for an, an analog to the McMurray. And I, well, I don't think it's the be all to end all analog for it. It's a great place to, to take a look at um, modern and ancient stuff side by side and, and to eat an Eftus worm and dig through the mud. So yeah, that's, that's it. No. And thank you. This was a, this was a heck of a lot of fun. Great. I hope, uh, I hope what I hope I, uh, I said what you wanted me to say. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing all no that. No problem. Happy. No problem. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.